0: unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Father, I pray as I always do, Father, I pray that you would send forth labors into your plenteous harvest field. Help us, Lord, to learn from this passage what you have for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. The last words of our Lord in Matthew's gospel are those of the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, or all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, it, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way even unto the end of the world. That is the Great Commission. Those are the last words of our Lord in the book of Matthew. But chapter 28 in Matthew begins with the resurrection at the very beginning of that chapter. Now, the resurrection is the basis for the Great Commission. Not only do we see that in Matthew chapter 28, we also see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is nothing but a a dissertation on the resurrection, beginning with the gospel at the beginning of chapter 15. And he goes on to underline the absolute necessity of resurrection the resurrection and how we can be waiting for the Lord's return for our own bodies to be transformed and have a resurrected body like our Lord's. And so, but Paul concludes the chapter on the resurrection with this exhortation. And he says, Therefore, therefore, based on everything he said in this chapter uh, concerning the resurrection, the Lord's resurrection and our own resurrection that is to follow, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the great commission again right here in 1 Corinthians 15. So our thoughts, uh, here's the question for us this morning out of this verse. How should the resurrection affect my life today? One day the Lord is going to return and we, when we see him face to face, when he calls us to be gathered together in the clouds and so shall we ever be with the Lord, that's the rapture. Our tr- bodies are going to be transformed and have a glorious body. We're looking forward to the resurrection, but the resurrection is not something that should affect us just in the future at the rapture. It is something that should have an effect on our lives today. And that's what 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight is telling us. In this verse, we learn that God wants to transform your life through the reality of the resurrection, not just in the future, but right now. Paul simply tells his readers in this verse three things. He says, first of all, I want you to think about something. When he says, therefore, he is bringing our thoughts back to the content of chapter 15. And so he says, I want you to think about something. But secondly, when he says, be ye steadfast, he says he wants us to not only think about something, he wants us to be something. You know, the emphasis of this verse is not so much on activity. It is not so much in abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not about activity. It's about being something. We're going to get into that in just a few moments. But then he concludes this verse by saying that he wants us to realize something. When he says, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, he's saying, I need you to realize something. So first of all, let's look at that first point. Paul's basis for the exhortation is that word, therefore. He he wants us to think about something. The content of chapter 15 is so important, it's so consequential, that the Apostle Paul gathers his readers and he makes an appeal both to their hearts and to their minds. Let's look at the appeal that he makes to their hearts. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren. So the fraternal bond that we have in Christ is what produces this appeal, the boldness of the appeal that the Apostle Paul has toward his readers, also to us, obviously. So the fact that we are not only just born again, not only are we saved from our sins, not only has the righteousness of Christ been created through our spiritual account and that God has accepted us into his presence and one day we'll spend eternal eternity with him, but in addition to all that, God adopts us into his family when we're born again, when we're saved. And that's what the Apostle Paul is underlining at the beginning of this verse when he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, he's making an appeal to our hearts and underlining the fact that we are all part of God's family. When Paul makes his appeal to the readers to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, he makes an appeal beginning with their hearts and saying, Hey, we are all in this together. We're all in the same family. You see, in our own family, there's... A, question that goes around constantly. We have three children, of course, and the question that goes around in our family is this, who is the favorite child? There's an argument over that all the time, and our children come to us and want us to affirm that they are indeed the favorite child. You know how that goes if you have more than one child. The favorite child is the one on your mind at that moment, because each child has their own uniquely valuable relationship with the parent. Now, in God's family, we each have a uniquely individual relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say is there are many brethren, but there's not just one favorite. We look at the Apostle Paul and we see how God has used the Apostle Paul. We look at Peter and how God greatly used Peter. And there are other men of God that we read about in the Bible. And what Paul is trying to say, we are all brethren. He was the great apostle, but he calls his Corinthian readers brethren. In God's family, we're all on the same level. And so we each have a unique relationship with God. And one of the main motivations for being involved in God's work is the simple fact that we're all part of His family. My parents came from southern Italy, immigrated to Chicago in the early 1960s. They raised a family there. My mother was saved in 1968. She was the first person in in our family that was saved on either side. And I praise God for that. That's when God came into our family. And over the decades, many, many uh, people in my, many family members have come to Christ. But years ago, my parents uh, were tailors and they started a little tailor shop in the Chicago area. And we there were five of us children in the family and we all worked in my parents' tailor shop. I remember being just a, a little guy and I would travel with my dad to the tailor shop in the mornings and we'd spend the day there and we'd vacuum the shop and we'd sweep up and we'd clean the windows and we'd polish the shoes. and We did all kinds of things in my dad's tailor shop. My sister's ironed the shirts and we have memories of growing up in my parents' tailor shop. Why did we do that? Why did we all work? Because in a family business, there's there's a job for everyone in the family business. Now what I'm trying to say is Paul is saying that the work of the Lord is a family business. And everyone has a job to do in the family business. I wanna, I'm reminded of my uncle's restaurants. So I had two uncles in Italy, and my mother would take us often. When I was a child, we would go to Italy and visit with other family members. And my two uncles had restaurants. I remember my cousins and I, by, by the way, my mother is one of nine children. Each of her siblings had at least five children. So there are many cousins that we have in Italy and uh, we would spend the summers living with my aunts and uncles, and we would work in their restaurants. So they had dozens of workers working for them in the restaurants. So I remember being eight, nine, ten years old, spending entire nights peeling garlic and washing dishes and stocking the refrigerators. And we did all kinds of work in my uncle's restaurant. Well, me and my cousins, who were we were Americans, we were from Chicago, and uh, we spent the summers there. And we didn't think it was going to be a, you know work camps all summer long. And I remember being eight, nine years old, and my cousins and I decided, look, this is too much. Uh, we're, we're just not going to show up to the restaurant one night. And so the three of us were just strolling down the sidewalk one day in town, just taking a walk. And we were just nine, ten years old. And, and my uncle then all of a sudden shows up, and he parks his car in front of us. He's like, hey, what are you guys doing? And we're like, Uncle Steve, we're, uh, we're not coming to the restaurant tonight. He's like, what do you mean? He said, and we said, we quit. He's like, Quit your family. He grabbed us by the ear. He threw us in the back of his car and drove us up to the restaurant. And we worked all night in the back of his restaurant. How was my uncle able to do that in our lives? That's, by the way, where I learned a work ethic was working in my uncle's restaurant. Why do we do that? Because we're family. And the family business, they depend on everyone in the family to contribute. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 when he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, humble, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is a family business. And then he calls them beloved. Of course, the love is the greatest motivation to do anything. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved us that He gave. And so I believe the greatest motivation to do anything is the fact that God loves us. and We ought to respond in love toward Him. And that's the greatest motivation for doing anything. Why would I serve the Lord? Simply because he loved me. How can I? He gave himself for me. How can I not give my life to him? So Paul makes an appeal to their hearts by calling them beloved brethren. But he also makes an appeal to their minds. And he says, therefore, and I want you to think about this and what he's pointing back to is the resurrection. What he's saying in this verse is that resurrection is everything. Denying the resurrection carried with it far-reaching consequences. Paul had said earlier in this chapter that the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed his life completely. And Christ, uh, if Christ is, if the resurrection isn't true, Christ is dead he says in this chapter if if the resurrection is true then your faith is vain if the resurrection is true then we are still in our sins and all the believers that have passed away before us are gone forever but uh in verse 19 he says if in this life only we have hope in christ we are of all men most miserable but then he says in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He wipes away without any hesitation uh, that false reasoning. What he's saying is the resurrection is everything. Without it, we wouldn't have it. We, we wouldn't have anything. And so the basis for the Great Commission is the resurrection itself. One day the Lord is going to return and we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We're talking about people who have received Christ as their Savior. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, and that's going to be glorious. But until that day, the Lord has left us here with a very important responsibility. And that's what leads us to the second point. Not only does He begin with make, helping them to think about something, think about how, the importance of the resurrection. It's, it means everything, Paul is saying. Think about the fact that, we, that God loves us. And think about the fact that we're part of God's family. This is what He wants us to think about. But secondly, he says, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the content of the exhortation. He's saying, be ye. Not only does he want us to think about something, but he wants us to be something. That word, be ye, literally means to become. To become. It's an imperative command, which means that I have a responsibility in the matter. It's also in the passive voice, which means it is something that I need God's help to fulfill in my life. I can't do it on my own. So God's command is to be steadfast and unmovable, and it is therefore something that I am responsible for responding to. God is telling all of us as we read this verse, He wants us to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And it is our responsibility to respond to that. Of course, I'm going to need God's help. And just like in John chapter 15, the Lord told his disciples, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. So we need to present ourselves to the Lord and become uh, available to him and allow him to transform our lives to make us steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, what does it mean? to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What, the Paul, what Paul is telling his readers here is this. First of all, he wants, them, he wants us to take up a submissive position under his control. When Paul is saying this, not just, he's not just wanting us to be involved in the work of the Lord. He wants us to become steadfast. That word be literally means to become. So what does it mean to become steadfast? That word steadfast literally means to be seated, stationary, to be still. You've heard the verse, Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. That is a seated, submissive position under the Lord's control. The first thing that God wants you to do is for you to place yourself under God's control. Now, we have a dog in Italy. I told the Sunday school, the young adult Sunday school class, they saw the picture, our family picture, and in our family picture we have a black Labrador. We love our dog. Our dog's name is Colt. When we got Colt several years ago, 2016, we wanted to train him. We wanted to make him obedient to some degree. And so we went to training school with him. And, and, uh, and when we taught Colt uh, in obedience school, the first thing that they taught us to teach him the very first command is this, sit, sit. You see, when you teach your dog to sit, that dog is placing himself under his master's control. That's exactly what God is teaching us in this verse right here when it says, Be ye steadfast. God wants us to obey his command and therefore to place ourselves Un, in a submissive position under his control. You've heard about the demoniac at Gadara that was, uh, that was seated at the, after the Lord had healed him and, and uh, cast the demons out of him. It says that they found the man seated, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I'm reminded of my dog and how uh, we taught him that command. One time I was going into my alley And uh, my dog followed me, and I didn't realize this. There was a cat over in the corner of the alley, and that cat noticed my dog. And as soon as that cat noticed my dog, that cat bolted. And when that cat bolted, my dog noticed the cat, and my dog bolted after the cat, and he was going down the alley toward the busy street. And I hollered over at my dog, and I said, "Colt, stop. Nothing. He kept going. I said, Colt, come. Nothing. He kept going. Then I remembered, Colt, sit. I tried that as a last resort. Colt, while he was galloping, while he was going after that cat, all of a sudden he heard, Colt, sit. And he took the seated position right there in mid-stride and he sat down. He learned that command, sit. And while he was chasing that dog, the only thing he could think of was to sit. And when that dog sits, he is placing himself under his master's control. That's exactly what God wants us to do is to place ourselves completely under his control. And what, whenever he calls for something, we, we are under his control. You've heard about Mary of Bethany. Jesus said of her, or the Bible says of her that she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That's exactly what God wants us to do. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said of Mary, But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Mary chose to be seated at the feet of Jesus and placing herself under His control. The first thing, or being steadfast, is a matter of your choosing. The first thing that we must become, based on the fact that Christ is risen and that we will rise again like Him, is to become a faithful, steadfast student of God's Word, Under his control. The Apostle Paul told his readers, Be ye, or become, steadfast. But then he goes on and he says, Unmovable. Be ye steadfast, unmovable. That word unmovable simply means persistent. Once you are seated under God's control and obeying His commands, don't move. Don't be distracted by other things. And I think that's one of the things that we have a problem with. We want to be under God's control. We place ourselves under God's control. But then we become distracted with things in life. You know, the second command that we taught our dog was not only to sit, but the second command we teach him is to stay. And that's just exactly what we have in this verse. You see, when we teach our dog to stay, if some other dog were to run up to him, he's not supposed to be distracted and chase after If I leave his presence or leave his view right there and I go around the corner, around the building, and when I come back, that dog is supposed to be seated in the same position where I told him to stay. That's exactly what God wants us to do. Once we've placed ourselves under God's control and submitted to Him, He wants us to not be distracted by things in the world. Think about a classroom environment where all the children have their desks facing the teacher, okay? They're seated. Okay, but not only are they to be steadfast, but they're also to be unmovable. If a student is always getting up and going to sharpen a pencil or going to the bathroom 50 times a day, then that's a distraction. Then they can't learn and the other kids can't learn. God is telling us in this verse, not only do we need to become steadfast, we also need to be unmovable, not be distracted. But he goes on and then he says, not only should we take up a submissive position under his control... But there should also be a progressive action in the Lord's service. He said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so abounding is the verb form of the adjective that we see in John 10. When Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. God describes our labor for Him, being involved in the work of the Lord, He describes it as something that should be abundant, which literally means to be exceed in measure, to go further, to be more than necessary, superfluous, and actually to be described as, it is described as excessive. Is our involvement in the work of the Lord, can it be described as excessive? Paul, remember, is not talking to the pastor in this verse. He's not talking just to the evangelist or to the missionary. He is speaking to the entire Corinthian church, which was just a regular church. It was an important church. And the Lord is speaking to this church. This is an important church. And God is telling you, He wants you to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord ought to characterize your life. It... Other people ought to view your life and say, that is excessive. That's what other people ought to say about your life. That it seems excessive. But from our standpoint, it is simply uh, logical. It is simply reasonable service, Romans chapter 12. It's our reasonable service. To sacrifice our life, to put our lives on the altar of sacrifice, is the most logical thing we can do. That's what that verse is telling us. And this verse is saying that we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord always means, uh, that points out the consistency of the work and the work of the Lord, the submission of the work. It's the Lord's work. He is my King. I am His servant and whatever He says is what I will do. So how do I become submitted to God, stable and active in His work? It starts with a choice of your will to trust Christ for every aspect of your life. Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said the life that he lived, he lived by the faith of Christ. He simply had to trust Christ for every aspect of his life. So we need to come to the place where we say to the Lord, Lord, I belong to You. I won't say no To you anymore. I will go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I will be what you want me to be. It's very clear the Lord wants us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I remember accepting Christ at a young age in the Chicago area, and then in 1986, my family decided to move to Italy. In 86, uh, I was an 11-year-old boy. We moved to Italy. There was not a church there. My mother began praying that God would send someone to start a church in Grosseto. We had family devotions. and My mother would pull out the hymnal and the Bible, and she would make us sing whenever we were irrit- or bothered by the fact. You know, we moved to Italy. It wasn't a pleasant thing. We didn't go there as missionaries. Um, there was some trouble in our family, and I remember we struggled with that decision to move to Italy at that time. And my mother would make us sing she'd pull out the hymnal make us sing i will go where you want me to go dear lord i remember singing that song as an 11-year-old boy very unhappily grinding my teeth thinking about that song many years later i was i went back to the states and then high school finished up high school joined the marines and it was in the marines that i was deployed to aviano italy and it was in aviano italy that i attended my very first missions conference it was in that missions conference was the first time that i realized that I, first time I heard preaching out of Isaiah chapter 6 or on the Great Commission and, and the, the great need that I had to just really just surrender my life to God. And I remember at the end of that missions conference, I finally told the Lord, okay, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. I won't say no to God anymore. I didn't surrender to be a missionary. I didn't surrender to be a preacher. I just surrendered my life to God and said, okay, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. My mind went back. 20 years before, or 10, that was about, let's see, that was about 10 years before when I had been singing, I will go where you want me to go. And I remember singing that angrily as a child. But then at the age of about 21 years old, when I finally surrendered my life to God, that song took on a whole new meaning for me. And that's what God wants each and every one of us to do. He wants us to realize that He is our King. We ought to just surrender our lives completely to Him. But Paul concludes in this verse saying, not only do I want you to think about something, my dearly beloved brethren, therefore my dearly beloved brethren, but not only does he want us to become something, become steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, but then he says, I want you to realize something. And he concludes by saying, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, he points out the fact that serving God may be exhausting, it may, be, it may not be pleasant. When he says, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, that word labor literally means, listen to this, it literally means a beating, grief, sorrow, fatigue, trouble, toil. Now, consider the Apostle Paul what he had gone through in the work of the Lord. Think of how many times he had been arrested. How many times he had been beaten? How many times he had been stoned and left for dead? How many times he had been persecuted? How many imprisonments he had experienced? How many shipwrecks? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you see a whole list. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he is exhorting his Corinthian readers to to be willing to go through all the same things with a humble heart. And so he says, you may go in the work of the Lord. You may face toil. You may face beatings. You may face real trouble. But that trouble you're going through, serving the Lord, it may not be pleasant. But then he says, but your labor, your, your experience, it's not in vain in the Lord. What he's saying, secondly, that all the difficulties you may face, but serving God is not without reward. And some of us are thinking too much of how difficult It would be to be involved in the work of the Lord. And how many things we need to sacrifice to be involved in the work of the Lord or for our labor for the Lord to be considered excessive. Hey, that's too much. Hey, what's too much? What is too much to give God? Answer that question. Is there too much that we can give to God? God is saying that our our labor, however, whatever we do for Him, is not in vain in the Lord. And so it may not be pleasant, but serving God is not without reward. One day we're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if we've been faithful. One day uh, at the judgment seat of Christ we'll be rewarded and we'll have something to cast before His feet at the throne of God. One day it will be worth it, but it's not only worth it in the future. I can tell you that it is already worth it while you're serving Him. When you see God's hand work in your life and through your life, And see Him do impossible things. I can give you 20 years of examples of God's permission. If I had a little bit more time this morning, I would tell you how God has miraculously provided for us when we started deputation and left our work with a little baby. and We had nothing left in our bank account. I'll go ahead and take a minute and tell you that one. I was working at a good factory while I was going through Bible College. Never had a need. A lot of kids were praying for their school bills to be met. I never had to pray for God to meet my school bill because I had a good job after the Marine Corps. But it came a time when we were starting deputation. The the mission board had told us you needed to be at about 20% support before you quit your job and go on full-time deputation. Well, we didn't have 10% of support yet, and Ariana was about to be born. And uh, we couldn't schedule any more meetings because, as a matter of fact, this, scheduling this missions conference was one of the things in September of 2004. We couldn't schedule it because I was busy working. And so we had decided, Lord, if, we don't, if I don't quit my job, I won't be able to schedule enough meetings to be able to get to the support level we need. So there came a point in our life where we had to decide, okay, Lord, is this the time that you want us to quit? And I remember uh, Ariana was born in August. We came to this missions conference. I still I took paternity leave, and so I was on leave for a little while, and that's when we came here to this church. And then I went back to work for the month of December. There were no missions conferences in December. I went back to work for a few weeks. And then after that, in January, the missions conferences were picking back up, and that was when I had given my 2 weeks' notice, and we left our job. I didn't have 10% support, and I remember going to Gaffney, South Carolina, filling up my gas tank. Our next meeting was going to be in Birmingham, Alabama. And I remember looking at my checkbook. I still carry a check register in my, in my wallet and, uh, with the balance of our checking account. And I remember looking in there. There was $76 in my checking account, and I filled up my Suburban at that time with $75. We had drained our entire checking account on the way to that meeting. And I remember realizing that as I was paying for that gas. And it, did, it didn't make me nervous, I'll be honest with you. But I remember looking at that checkbook and saying, okay, Lord, this is it. And I just put it in, in the gas tank. And we drove to Birmingham, Alabama. We made it there on that, gas, on that tank of gas. At the end of that week, that was, by the way, that was the lowest point financial I'd ever been in my entire life, down to zero. Praise God I wasn't in debt. We we got down to zero. We got to that missions conference in Birmingham, Alabama. At the end of the week, the children that had taken up a penny offering gave us a $1,500 offering at the end of that week. Now, that's just one example of how many times God has graciously provided for us throughout the years. By the way, never again, and I hope never to have to get to that point again, but never again have we ever gotten down to zero. Okay? Praise God. God has abundantly provided for us. But I can give you examples of how atheists have come to Christ and are now preaching in our church. How alcoholics have come to Christ and are now serving God in our church. Former Roman Catholics are now saved and serving God in our church. I can give you example after example. What I'm trying to say is you realize that your labor is not in vain in the Lord when you see God do something. When you see people's lives transformed by the gospel, you realize your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You can, take, you can come to my house and visit us and head south an hour and a half drive and you can come to the city of Rome and you can visit the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Paul wrote in that prison, 2 Timothy. I love visiting that place and I love taking people to the Mamertine prison where Paul wrote 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. For I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. And listen to this. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. What Paul is saying is that... Serving the Lord is not without reward, and it's not only for the apostles, that truth, but it's also for each one of us. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He toiled. He was beaten. He was exhausted. His labor was not in vain in the Lord, but neither is yours. God wants us to realize that the resurrection ought to have an effect on our lives right now, not just at the rapture, not just in the future, But right now, he wants us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And realize that this is the family business. If we don't help, who's going to do it? And that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. In just a moment, I'm going to turn over the service to pastor. Perhaps we can have a pianist come and begin playing as I just conclude with these thoughts. Why don't you? start with a decision to trust Christ in every aspect of your life. Why don't you just lay it all on the altar right now this morning and say, "Lord, here am I. Send me. I will do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go." Why don't you decide to be a missionary? You say, "Well, that might be excessive." Would it be too much to give the Lord To say, Lord, if you were to call me to go somewhere across the world, I'll be willing to follow you. Think about this. If you don't, who will? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege of opening your word this morning. And I pray that you have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Imitation invitation
1: is open. You might be here this morning and first of all, you may not even know that you're saved. You don't have any confidence about eternity. If that would be you, you need to come today. Maybe you're here today and you say, I know without a doubt that I'm saved. I don't have any questions about that. Well, then we need to answer the question this morning, are we being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Because the Bible gives us the promise That our labor is not in vain And so we can be steadfast Unmovable Always abounding And we can be steadfast Unmovable Always abounding Because of the resurrection So believers How is it with us today? Teenagers Young adults might be a young man in here this morning, the Lord's been working in your heart about the mission field. Maybe there might be some young folks, Just the Lord's just been working on your heart about surrendering. Not necessarily to be a missionary or preacher, but just saying, Lord, I want to sit and be still and be submissive to whatever you have for me. Whatever you'd call me to do, Lord, that, that's my heart's desire. Maybe you'd come this morning and seal that and settle that with the Lord today. This altar's open, the front pews are open. If you need to come, you come. Dear friend, if you died today, are you 100% confident that heaven would be your home? Do you know without a doubt? Has there ever been a time in your life when, you call, when you've called upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? And you could give testimony this morning. Say, I don't have any doubts. If death were to take me today, as soon as I took my last breath here, I'd step across that threshold into the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen, I'll go with him, the song says, whether that's across the ocean to another country or whether that's across the street or across town to give someone the gospel, I'll go with him. I pray that's our heart's desire this morning. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. I hope you'll get by and get a prayer card. Uh, Let the Mieters know that you'll be praying for them. They're going to head out this afternoon and headed down to Huntsville have a conference there this week. And so uh, pray for them. Get a card, stick it on your refrigerator, and pray for them this week, and not just this week, but in the days to come. Pray for their kids, and pray for them as they are away from their kids. And uh, let's be busy about that work. Brother Rick Jurdak, would you close us in prayer, please, sir?